World War II. It's known as the greatest generation. And these are their stories. It's the World War II Project. This is the Americhicks with your host, Kim Munson. Hey, welcome to the Americhicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Uh, thrilled today. We've got an amazing show planned for you today. We will be talking with Lieutenant Colonel James Harvey. Uh, he's a World War II veteran, um, uh, flu fighters, and uh, so really excited to have that conversation. But be sure and check out my website, americhicks.com, and sign up for my emails, uh, americhicks.com forward slash Kim, and we'll make sure that we keep you apprised of all the upcoming shows. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and jump right in here. As many of you know, I had the great honor in 2016 to travel with a group that took four D-Day veterans back to Normandy for the D-Day celebrations and returned back to the States realizing that we need to capture these stories. These guys were just kids. They were 16, 17, 18, 19 years old. They're now in their 90s. And uh, it is so important. Each person has their own individual story. And uh, so I've had the great honor to interview over 100 World War II veterans. Today, thrilled to get to interview uh, Lieutenant Colonel James Harvey. Harvey, welcome to the Americhicks. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you have quite a story. You uh, were one of the Tuskegee Airmen, correct? Yes. And uh, quite a history. And so we want to share that with our listeners. I think a lot of our young people don't know these stories. But let's start at the beginning, Harvey. Where were you when you heard that Pearl Harbor had been bombed? Oh, boy. Uh, I was at home up in Mountaintop, Pennsylvania. And uh, that's when I heard about it. What went through your mind? Say again. What What went through your mind? What did you feel? Oh, <laughs> okay. Oh boy, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How old were you then, Harvey? Oh, let's see. What was that? Forty-one. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, seven. Let's see. Sixteen. Sixteen years old. Yeah. Okay. When did you decide, or how did you end up in the military? Well, I tried to enlist in the Army. I'm sorry. I tried to enlist in the Army Air Corps in January of 1943, but they said they weren't taking enlistments at that time. That was the height of the war, but uh, they were just telling me they just didn't want me, period. That's all. So I said, okay, no problem. Then I was drafted into the Army in March of 43. So they didn't want you when you wanted to enlist, but they wanted you when they drafted you, huh? Correct. (laughs) What's wrong with that picture, huh? (laughs) Okay, so you're drafted into the Army. Right. You ended up in the Army Air Corps. Tell us about that journey. Okay, I, uh, like I said, I was drafted in the Army. I reported to Fort Meade, Maryland on the uh, uh, 3rd of uh, March, 1943. I was issued my uniform, took the physical exam, and got my shots and all that good stuff. And uh, I was there a couple of days and took a written exam. 
And uh, then they sent me to Jefferson Barracks, Missouri, for basic training. And I went to Jefferson Barracks, completed my basic training, and then from there they uh, sent me to Fort Belvoir, Virginia. Now, based on my scores that I made me that I made on my exams, they put me in the Army Air Corps. Uh, Army Air Corps engineers. Okay. My mission was to go to the generals of the Pacific, uh, doze out an area, build an airfield for aircraft to land on. Okay. Uh, we used to go out and practice every day, and uh, I said, this isn't for me. So I applied for cadet training, and I reported. There were nine whites and myself reported for the exams. And when everything was over, two of us passed. Wow, you and one wow. other, one other, huh? Right, one white guy and myself. What was that and exam? That, what was that exam like, uh, Harvey? Oh, oh uh, boy, you know, my memory. Well, that was a while ago. It was 1943, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so now, All I know is I remember the depth perception. Okay. Uh, part of the exam. Okay. Uh, we had to sit with uh, two ropes in our hands, and they had, and through a hole, there were these two sticks, and they were, these two sticks were set, and you had to uh, move them and line them up, but you had to move them correctly the first time you pulled on the cord. They wanted to take the perception on that one. Okay. That's about the only thing I remember. Plus, we had a lot of written stuff. Okay. That we had to complete also. Okay. That I remember. But just what subjects, what they covered in that exam, I don't know. All I know is I passed. You passed, and so one other guy passed. That's the important part, right? For sure. Now, Harvey, back in nineteen, the nineteen forties. Tell us about the military. It was not integrated at that time, right? Right. So what what did that look like? <laughs> uh, boy. You know, I didn't pay much attention to it. Uh, when I was raised, uh, there wasn't any segregation whatsoever. Uh, I was treated just like any other person. And I didn't run into any of this segregation until I arrived in Washington, D.C. from my home in Pennsylvania on the way to Fort Meade, Maryland. And I, I got off the train in Washington, D.C. We had an hour layover. So I went and had breakfast. And I came back to get on the car that I arrived on. And I says, no, you can't get in this car. You have to ride in the car where Negroes ride. So... They put me in that car, and I completed the journey on to uh, uh, Fort Meade. But uh, that was the first I had experienced any uh, segregation. Welcome to the South. Welcome to the so, South, huh? Well, and from then on, everything else, everything was segregated from then until 40, well, when we were integrated in the military in 48. But really, nothing happened until April 49 when they broke our group up. Okay, okay. 
You know, it's astounding to, to really think about that. When I was talking to our, our mutual friend, Jake Schroeder, as we were preparing for this uh, this interview, he said, you know, you know, ask you about, um, you know, the, the, you know, how you, well, he said, basically, you guys didn't get the best equipment. You had to do with uh, lesser quality many times in your equipment. Uh, could you talk to that just a little bit? Yeah, yes. Like you said, we didn't get new stuff. We got old stuff, and we repaired the old stuff and made it work, and made it work like new stuff. But uh, anyway, we, uh, our enlisted people were the best. They could uh, put anything together and make it work, and which they did. And, uh, well, they, they were the best in the Air and Air Corps. Um, the uh, military, the maintenance section is evaluated every year by headquarters, and uh, the 332nd always came in number one. That's how good our people were, always. And, and the three. We went, the, we went to the weapons meet. We flew the same three airplanes every mission. So they were good. They were good. Sounds like they were really good. And uh, the 332nd, that was your fighter group. And yeah. it was. Uh, it's also known as the Red Tails, right? And the Tuskegee Airmen are the guys that were part of three, the 332nd. Correct. Okay. Now, why were you guys called the Red Tails? Well, uh, all the fighter groups had markings on their aircraft. Some had checkerboards. They had different markings. And uh, ours were just, the tails were painted red. So they call us the Red Tails. Red Tail Angels. So The Red Tail Angels. And right. I was, in something that I was reading in preparation for this, it said that uh, you guys were, you know, flew a lot of the escorts for the bombers. And that many times the bombers would request you guys because you were so good. That's right. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your initial experience. So you, you're not now you know, training for the Army Air Corps. I guess we're, we haven't really talked too much about training. So you've arrived. So tell us about basic training. Well, the training, uh, we started in primary. Our instructors were, well, I don't know what terminology to use. If we use the terminology of the time, we were called Negroes then. Okay. And our instructors were Negroes. They were graduates from the Tuskegee Institute Flying School. And uh, that was done at Moton Field, our primary training. And they had to build a segregated airfield for us to get our basic and advanced training. Now, flight cadets, uh, when they took their training, they took primary at one field, basic at another, and advanced at a third field. Uh, we got our basic, our base, our primary training at uh, Moton Field at Tuskegee, Alabama, and they built this other airfield, Tuskegee Army Airfield, for us to get our basic and advanced training. So we just moved a few miles to another airfield for our basic and advanced. So everything for us was done right there. Okay. Uh, we didn't get to move around like the, uh, the white cadets. Okay. Uh, and like I said, our primary instructors were Negro, and our basic and advanced were white. 
and so throughout those two phases of our training. And uh, in primary, the instructors prepared us for what we would get when we got to the white instructors and uh, calling us different names and all this kind of stuff to teach us to be able to restrain ourselves and sort of go with the flow, if you want to call it that, and not rock the boat, do what you're told, and just do your best. And that's what we did. And everything worked out. Well, it sounds like you did do your best because you guys are famous for sure. Um, when did you f- figure out that you were actually going to become a fighter pilot? Oh, years ago, uh, before I got in the military, I lived in Mountaintop, Pennsylvania. It's out in the sticks. I lived in the country. And it's near Wilkesbury. They had an airport in Wilkesbury. And I was in my front yard in Mountaintop. Well, actually, no go a station to be exact. And I saw this flight of P-40s fly over there, flying in formation. And I said, I'd like to do that one day. That was it. <laughs> Never made a model or anything. And uh, then when I got in the military and went through this uh, training that I had to do with the earth-moving equipment, and I said, that wasn't for me. And something said to me, oh, voice said, apply for cadet training. So I did. You know, Harvey, I have found when you get that nudge to do something, you should just do it. You know what? I think you should just do it. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, back then, back then I was a perfectionist, and everything I did had to be perfect. And when I got married, everything changed, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you married the perfect woman, so that worked out okay, right? Uh, okay, okay. So you have applied for for flight school, and um, when did you figure out it was going to be fighters? Oh, well, uh, I didn't. They put me in a single-engine class. Oh. And uh, so I just went through in a single-engine class. That's what I wanted. But then okay. I got what I wanted, but uh just happened to work out the way I wanted it to uh, it's that simple. Okay. And how about the first time that you flew by yourself? What went through your mind? Oh, boy. Uh, instructor, we had been flying, and you know, landed, and the instructor got out, and he said, you got it. It's going to be a couple uh, flights around the field, come back and land, and uh, which I did. And uh, what a feeling, great feeling up there in that big bird all by myself, and uh, I conquered it. Wow. And from then on, uh, everything was gravy, so to speak. I loved it. I loved it. Wow. And what... When I got got into the fighter aircraft, that was better yet. And what did you fly? Which fighters did you fly? Uh, I started out, when we graduated at Tuskegee, we got 10 hours in the P-40 right there at Tuskegee. Then after that, we were sent to Walterboro, South Carolina, for combat training. And uh, when I went to Walterboro, they had P-40s, and later on they switched to P-47s. 
then uh, after I finished combat training, uh, then when I was assigned to uh, the 99th in uh, in uh, Gammonfield, Kentucky, in April of '45, uh, uh, I was flying P-47s, okay. and I flew those up until they broke the group up in uh, um, May of '40 and June of '49, and scattered us all over the world. And from there, I went to a jet outfit in Japan, and they had F-80s. And I flew the F-80 there and got back to the States. I flew the F-86 in the next squadron I went to. I was there, I flew the F-86, A, E, F, and D models. And, uh, and I had different assignments. And I got a chance to fly the F-89, the F-94. And uh, then I was assigned to a uh, an F-102 squadron. I was the uh, ops officer. And uh, the F-102, that was my favorite. Uh, quite a pilot's light speed. And that airplane, you'd go supersonic on the deck. Big delta wing is what it was. Beautiful aircraft. But uh, I got to fly that. I got quite a few hours in that. And that's the last aircraft I flew. So I flew quite a few jets. Wow. And quite a few conventional. So I had a rounded career as far as flying goes. That is quite a career, James Harvey, Lieutenant Colonel James Harvey. Wow. Okay, you know what? We're going to go to break. I I have so many other things that I want to ask you. Before we do that, though, you know, it is a great time to be a sports fan here in Colorado. And Hooters Restaurants is my sports headquarters. Hooters is the place to watch all the games. Wednesday is Wing Day. All the wings you can eat for $14.99. Their smoked wings are delectable and only half the calories. Hooters Wings can fly. You can have them delivered right to your front door when the girls come over on Wednesday nights. That's what I do. So for more information, uh, to have your Hooters Wings to go, have them delivered right to your front door, or go over to Hooters and watch the game, check out HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. Let them know that you know the AmeriChicks. And this is Kim Munson uh, talking with uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel uh, James Harvey, who flew just about every plane that I think I've ever heard of. And uh, we're going to go to break. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com, and sign up for my emails at AmeriChicks.com forward slash Kim, and we will keep you apprised of all the upcoming guests and topics. I am thrilled and honored to have on the line with me Lieutenant Colonel James Harvey. He is one of the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, he flew fighter fighter uh, fighters in uh, World War II and then jets. Uh, we haven't talked yet about that in the Korean War. But, uh, Harvey, I, I, we need to understand a little bit more about what was going on with um, blacks in the military uh, during World War II. My understanding is, is there was some kind of a report that was done in 1927 uh, that really affected... Uh, how blacks were treated in the military. Please speak to that. Well, was, um, what you're talking about is a, uh, uh, a class, the Army War College class of 1925. They put out a report uh, on the uh, the, uh, the American Negro and also the Negro that fought in World War II. 
And that's what you're referring to. And that report, uh, I get mad every time I read it. I don't memorize anything in it. Now, when I give talks, I quote different parts of it, but uh, I read it. I don't want it in my psyche. Well, you may say, if you read it, it's going to be in your psyche. Right. No. I belong to a certain group of seniors. We read something, we finish reading, we don't know what we, we forgot what we read. Therefore, <laughs> 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 I don't have it in my psyche. Okay, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. Uh, have you ever heard any parts of it? You know, only what my friend Jake had told me about it. Okay, well... <laughs> I I just happen to have a copy of it right here in front of me. Okay. Uh, like I said, they did a report on the Negro soldier during World War One, and then the American Negro. Now, here's what they had to say about the American uh, Negro soldier during World War One. Uh, according to the studies, Negro soldiers were childlike, careless shiftless, irresponsible, secretive, superstitious, unmoral and untruthful, and more likely to be guilty of moral turpitude. A comic, emotionally unstable, musically inclined with good rhythm, and it said, loyal and compliant. Despite the fact that the Negro soldiers who fought with the French during World War I were highly decorated. Now, why is this? What's the difference between the ones that were in the military in the States and those who fought with the French? Yeah. Segregation. That's what it was. Now, also, this is what they had to say about the Negro in general. The Negro was barely qualified for combat duty, was by nature subservient, mentally inferior, and believed himself to be inferior to the white man, was susceptible to the influence of crowd psychology, could not control himself in the face of danger, and did not have the initiative, courage, and resourcefulness of the white man. It is generally recognized that the American Negro is inferior to our white population in mental capacity. The intelligence of the Negro is shown his inability to compete with the white in professions and activities when mental equipment is an essential for success. Wow. <laughs> End of quote. Now, that, I like that last part. Uh, talking about the uh, when mental equipment is an essential for success. We proved them wrong. We sure proved them wrong. Well, that it shouldn't have been any doubt to start with, but that's the way it was. That's the way it was. Well, and you we guys, did. you guys did. Uh, so tell us the history about the Tuskegee Airmen, to, uh, so that our listeners can understand that. Yeah, tell us about the history of the Tuskegee Airmen. So you have this challenge here. There is this report from the uh, War, uh, Army War College, 1925. Right. And you guys looked at that and said that's not true. So tell us about the history of the Tuskegee Airmen. Oh, 
It's already been. <clears throat> well, okay. Everybody doesn't know about it. Uh, the circumstances in which we had to operate were horrendous. Everybody was against us. Like I just read, we didn't have the ability to do anything. Uh, but we knew. We knew. And uh, we just went out and proved them wrong at every turn. And we ended up being the best. Now, we proved it overseas that we were the best. We were requested uh, by bomber groups to escort them mm -hmm. on bombing missions. And then we got back to the States. Then in 49, we had the weapons made. And 332nd was invited to attend that. And I was one of the members of the team that won. We won that. So what else is there for a fighter pilot? We proved that we could do it at every turn. And we were the best. And our maintenance people were the best. So we had the best group in the uh, Army Air Corps and the United States Air Force. Well, and and speak to that just a little bit more. This uh, competition in 1949, it was a Top Gun uh, competition, and you won. You were the best. Yes. yes. And so what was that competition? What did you do exactly? Okay, the competition was divided into two groups, jets and conventional. And we were flying the obsolete P-47. It was a good aircraft, but it was still obsolete. We were flying the obsolete P-47, and our competitors that we competed against were flying P-51s and F-82s. An F-82 looks like two P-51s, two P-51 fuselages with one wing and one horizontal stabilizer, and uh, that's what our competitors were flying. Uh, the competition was aerial gunnery at... Uh, 12,000 feet, aerial gunnery at 20,000 feet, dive bombing, skip bombing, rocket firing, panel strafing, and, uh, and uh, anyway, uh, you want me to go through what we did each day? Yeah, I'd like to hear okay. that. Okay, the first day we had, uh, well, let me back up. They're going to award two trophies, one for high individual and one for uh, the best group, fire group. Okay. Uh, also, one of the rules of the league was if you abort, your teammates take off and their score is counted. Okay. First day of the league, we had an area of 12,000 feet. At the end of the day, we were leading as a group. And Captain Temple was leading his high individual. Okay. The next day, we had two missions at 20,000 feet. <clears throat> at the end of the <clears throat> pardon me. At the end of the day, Captain Temple was leading his high individual, and we we're leading as a group. Okay. Now the next day, we had. Let me explain a mission. A mission is when you take off with three aircraft take off fully loaded with ammunition, go to the target area, expend your ammunition, return to the base, reload, refuel, take off, go to the uh, target area, expend your ammunition. That's two missions there. Go back to the base, 
reload, refuel, take off, go to the area, expend your ammunition. That's three missions right there. That's three missions. Okay. Okay. Now, how do you tell whose bullets go through the target? We'll pick three colors. Red, blue, and green. They dip the bullets in that color wax. And as the bullets go through the air, they heat up. And when they go through the target, they leave a residue around the hole. So that's how they know whose bullets went through the hole of the target. It went through the target. Okay. Okay. The second day, we had air got air 20,000 feet. At the end of the day, Captain Temple's leading as high individual, and we're leading as a group. Oh, me. Next day we have dive bombing. Come over your target about 12,000 feet, roll it over, drop straight down, line up on your target, release your bombs, and pull off by 2,000 feet. None of the groups did very well that day on the dive bombing. However, at the end of the day, Captain Temple was reading his high individual. And we're leading as a group. The next day, we have skip bombing. Now, on skip bombing, we're carrying two bombs, each person two bombs, three missions, three people. So that's six bombs per person. Now, you're coming in, you're so low to the ground, your propeller carrying the ground by about a foot. And when you release, release your bomb, you're so low, the bomb doesn't have a chance to nose over yet. So it hits flat and skips through the target. We had three missions, so like I said, so that's six bombs per person. Captain Temple had six for six. Lieutenant Stewart had six for six. And I had six for six. Wow. At the end, at the end of the day, Captain Temple was leading his high individual. We're leading as a group. The next day we have rocket firing. Same configuration, we carrying two rockets per aircraft, three missions, three products, so that's six rockets per person. Captain Temple had six for six, Stuart had five for six, I had five for six. So at the end of the day, Captain Temple's leading as high individual, and we're leading as a group. Now we have one more mission to fly, and that's panel scraping. Now, this is my thinking. At this point, we've got a lock on the meat. Now, they don't want to see us take everything. They want to get, they want to salvage something out of this meat. They don't want these black guys, or Negroes, I should say, use the terminology of the times. They don't want these Negroes taking everything. We've got to get something out of this. So, we had one of the pilots in the P-51 outfit that had to abort. Remember what I said? The abort, just your teammate scores counted. Anyway, they gave him another airplane. So he took off in, his, in this new aircraft. Anyway, his score was so high that I personally think they gave him extra bullets also. Anyway, he aced Captain Temple out of first place. He was behind Temple. He was close behind him. But anyway, when this panel strafing took place, 
he aced Captain Temple out of first place for a high individual. However, we won as a team. The Air Force Association puts out a, a magazine every month, and once a year they put out an almanac. One of the items in the almanac are the winners of the 1949 Weapons Made True Present Day. Now, I think today it's called Red Flight. Anyway, each year when that almanac came out, the winner of the 1949 Weapons Meet was listed as unknown, unknown, unknown. Oh, my God. Finally, in 1993, my group commander, Colonel Campbell, called me and asked me if I need that on the meet. I told him, no, I didn't have any. Maybe Stuart does. So he called Stuart. Stuart said he didn't have it. He could probably find it in Ellis. So he went to Nellis, and he found what he was looking for, and he presented it to the Air Force. As of 1995, it showed the winner of the 1949 weapons meet. That's a 332nd fighter group. Forty-six years. They knew who won, but they just, they just did not want to recognize her as being the winner. We got a big three-foot trophy, solid silver. Somehow that got misplaced. And we have a lady in Atlanta. Her name is Sally Orr. She's an historian. She made it her mission to find this trophy. She found it in five days at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base Museum storage area. So she went to Wright-Patterson. She saw the trophy, and she asked, why isn't this on display? They said, we get a lot of items in, we can't display everything, and this item will never be on display. Well, it is on display. 55 years in hiding. Wow. That's the story of our life. Just like when the group came back from overseas, touched down on American soil. At that point, they put a classification of top secret on the Tuskegee Airmen. That classification did not come off until 1995, 50 years, when they made the movie The Tuskegee Airmen. Wow. They just didn't want people to know or know about the Tuskegee Airmen. The program was too successful. After all this hoopla about the, uh, written by the Army War College class of 1925 about our mentality. Wow. So, uh, see, they had egg on their face. So they just didn't want people to know about us. But it's gradually coming out. Yeah, it is. Um Hey Harvey, I, I mean this is this makes me angry. How, you don't sound bitter to me at all. How how have you dealt with all this? <laughs> well, I'm a five year old girl. I was going to talk one day, and she said, "How did you cope? How did you put up with all this?" I said, "Well, when I look at it, she didn't have a problem. I had the problem." I just did what I had to do to accomplish what I had to accomplish. So you, yeah, so you stayed focused on you. You stayed focused on being the very best that you could be. And even, right. even though the trophy was hidden, even though this was top classified information, you guys knew. You guys knew right. in your own heart that you... And, and you know what? Everybody else knew, too. Everybody else that was involved in that 
they knew too. And so I think that we can take a lot of heart in that. Because, you know, somebody said to me one time, the only fair in life is the county fair and the state fair. (laughs) And, uh, you know, this doesn't sound real fair to me what happened, but you stayed focused on being the best you that you could be. And you always knew that in your heart. So, hey, how old are you now, uh, Harvey? I'm 95. 95 years old. Wow. Right. Or 95 years young, we'll say. Hey, there you know, you go. <laughs> we're, we're going to go to break, okay? And when we come back, it will be our final segment. And uh, just thrilled to have on the line with me uh, retired Lieutenant Colonel James Harvey, one of the Tuskegee Airmen, talking about they were the best of the best. And uh, so this is Kim Munson. We will be right back. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks World War II Project with Kim Munson. I am thrilled to have on the line with me retired Lieutenant Colonel James Harvey, a fighter pilot, uh, the best of the best. Uh, Whatever the Top Gun, his team or his group won the uh, Top Gun competition in 1949. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Harvey, it is so great to have you on the line, and thank you. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about World War II. Uh, your group, the Tuskegee Airmen, are the 332nd. The Red Tails are over in Europe, and uh, you're preparing to go over to join them. So tell us a little bit about that. Okay. You're going to be disappointed about this one. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. Um, in uh, April of 40, 1945, I completed my combat training in Walter Brown, South Carolina. I was within one hour of catching the train to go to Norfolk to get on the ship to go over and join the group. And we got a message saying to hold us. The war in Italy was over, and they expected to wind, the whole, wind up the whole European theater. Well, Hitler gave up in May the following month. So I would have been on the high seas. So I did not make it over to join the group. And... Uh, I just went from Walterboro, South Carolina, and went to Diamond uh, uh, Hill, Kentucky, in April to join the uh, 99th Fighter Squadron. And it's come back. Okay. And uh, what went through your mind when you heard that the war was over? Well, I said, uh, well, the reason, the reason Hitler gave up is he heard I was coming. <laughs> so Hitler gave up because he knew you were coming. You were our secret weapon, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, I was disappointed that I wasn't able to go over, but uh, it's good that the war ended. Yeah, it is. yeah, for sure. Yeah. But you no served... more casualties. <clears throat> well, you served in the Korean War, though. So tell us about those those years. Uh, we talked a little bit about the competition in 1949. The Korean War sh- uh, starts shortly thereafter. So what what's going on from 1945 to when you end up serving in the Korean War? Okay. Uh, we're at Diamond Field, Kentucky, uh, in 1945. Then in 46, they were looking for an airfield to move. The runway was too short at Diamond Field, Kentucky. We had a, four squadrons of B-25s also. A lot of people do not know that. But anyway, we had four squadrons of B-25s and one squadron of P-47s at Godmanville, Kentucky. The runway was too short. We needed another airfield, but no one wanted us in their backyard. Uh, there was an airfield that was closed at uh, 
who was called Rockborn in Columbus, Ohio. So President Truman said that we would go there. So we moved from Gardner to Rockborn to name the base in Columbus, Ohio. And that's where our group was until May of 49, when they broke our group up and scattered us all over the world. Okay, we had the gunnery made or the weapons made in, in May of 49, and the next month of June is when they broke us up. Now, Eddie Drummond, who was a, a squadron mate of mine, he and I went to Masao. We were sent to Masao, Japan. Pardon me. Uh, before we were sent, our records had been sent to the group in Masala, Japan. So they knew we were coming. So the wing commander called all the pilots on the base into the base theater. He said, we have these two Negro pilots are coming in, and they'll be assigned to one of the squadrons. Well, the pilots told us this themselves. They said, no way are we going to fly with them. No way. Okay. Any German and I reported into the uh, wing commander in uh, June, in uh, May of 49. No, in June of 49, sorry. And uh, we were talking, and uh, the commander said, uh, full, full colonel. He said, what do you want us to call you? I said, well... I'm a first lieutenant. Eddie Drummond's a second lieutenant. How about Lieutenant Harvey and Drummond? He said, okay. But then he made a mistake. He said, we have three fighter squadrons on the base. Two P-51 squadrons and an F-80 squadron. Which one do you want to go to? I quickly said F-80. So he put us both in the F-80 squadron. Now, they did not have a T-33 trainer version of the F-80, but they did have an AT-6 that we flew in advance. Now, the AT-6 is generally used for instrument training. So, what they had us do, and me get in the back seat, pull the hood up. I couldn't see out. All I had were my instruments. The pilot up front got clearance, taxi instructions for takeoff. He'd line it up on the runway. I got two missions to go like this. He'd line it up on the runway. He said, okay, you have it. So I applied my throttle, released the brakes, applied throttle, down the runway, off the ground, put up the gear, flaps, mixture control, prop pitch, all that stuff. Flying around, do the maneuvers he wanted me to do, then contact ground control approach, and they would vector me in for a landing, touch down the runway, and the guy up front would take over. And two flights like that. Now, what does that have to do with flying the F 80? Nothing. <laughs> My thought is they wanted to see if we could fly. Then we proved we could fly. So, uh, anyway. Uh, I flew the F-80, I checked out, I was good at what I did, because I was a Tuskegee Airman. Uh, anyway, uh, about nine months later, I was a flight commander in that squadron. Wow. Scheduling the other guys to fly missions. And uh, about that time, the Korean War started, 
So uh, it's going to hit the prime missions over Korea. But I didn't have any problems whatsoever. My whole military career, no problems with integration whatsoever. Some of the guys did, but I personally, and Eddie Drummond personally did not. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, refresh my memory. When was the military integrated then? Well, actually, integration started in 48, in September 148, uh, or October 148. Okay. But uh, actually, nothing much happened <laughs> until they broke our group up. Okay. And that was in mass. So uh, I'd say that's when things really happened. And is that why they broke you guys up and sent you all over the world is for integration? What was that? Is that why they broke your group up and sent you guys all over the world to integrate the uh, armed forces? Yes. Okay. Actually, at that time, we had two, two Air Forces, Black Air Force and a White Air Force. You don't need that. All you need is one Air Force. Yeah, one Air Force should do the trick. Right. Okay, well, let's talk about Korea. How many missions did you fly in Korea? I flew 126 missions in Korea. Harvey, that seems unheard of to me. I mean, that's a, that's a lot. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a lot. It's not unheard of. Uh, we had one guy in our group, uh, Colonel McGee. He's flown 409 missions with uh, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Wow. That's almost unbelievable. And the Tuskegee Airmen uh, is one of the most decorated uh, groups of men in the military, correct? Correct. Do you have any numbers on that by any chance? Uh, No, I don't have any numbers. I'm I'm sure that we can all Google that and find that out. But um, 126 missions. Uh, What were these missions like? What did you do? Was it escort, bombing, both? What were they like in the Korean War? Our mission in flying the F-80 was generally in support of the ground troops. However, I did have one mission when I was escorting a B-29 up over Pyongyang. He was trying to take out the bridge over the Yellow River of Pyongyang. Uh, On that particular mission, uh, I was flying along straight and level off to the side and behind a little bit. And uh, something, a little voice said, turn. So I made a right turn, and where I would have been, there was this puff of black smoke right at that altitude. I moved my turn just in time, or I wouldn't be here talking to you today. Wow. And then from then on, I was all over the sky. So that they didn't know exactly where you were, huh? Yeah, yeah. What? Uh, but we... uh, mostly our missions were ground support. Uh, we carried uh, 50 caliber ammunition, napalm, and 500 uh, rockets and 500 pound bombs. Okay. All depending on the target as to what we carry. Now the napalm we use mostly on uh, tunnels. <laughs> tunnels that the uh, North Koreans use to keep their operations and also train tunnels. Now, napalm loves oxygen, 
So when they when they drop a napalm bomb, it goes off, it ignites, and then like I said, it loves oxygen, so it'll just suck oxygen for yards for yards away. Now if it's a tunnel, it'll just suck all the oxygen out of that tunnel, and you know the rest. Mm-hmm. Take the oxygen out. <laughs> you need oxygen to breathe. Right. So the occupants in the tunnel they are no more. Okay. So, as a soldier, as a military person, what what is your view regarding war? Well, war is no good. Uh, it's no good for anybody. Uh, it's too bad we have them. But uh, if you're in it, you do your best to survive. It's the old motto, like they told us in the army. Kill or be killed. So that's your motto. So that's what you live by. That's what you live by. There's no getting around it. And how long were you in the military, Harvey? 22 years. Okay. And how did you end up in Colorado? That's an interesting story. (laughs) I retired in Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, that was the home office for Oscar Mayer. So, before I got out of the service, Oscar Mayer was hiring, so I went to Oscar Mayer, took a bandit test. I interviewed for almost a week with everyone just shy of Oscar himself. (laughs) And uh, they said, you're hired. I was still in the service. They said, you're hired. When do you want to go to work? I said, oh, I retire the uh, 31st of May. I'd like a week off. They said, okay, report the 7th of June. So I reported the 7th of June, and I was supposed to be at the plant there for three months, learning the operation from slaughter to completion of all the products. So that when I went out as a salesman, I could talk intelligently about the items I was selling. Mm-hmm. One month into the program, they needed a salesman in northern, northeastern New Jersey. So they sent me there. So I was there for three years, and they sent me to Detroit, Michigan as a district manager. I was there for a year and a half. Then they sent me to uh, Philadelphia plant as an assistant sales manager. <laughs> Pardon me. I was there for three years. Uh, we had a, we had marketing conferences every year at different places in the South. Uh, so uh, this particular year, we're at Disney. We had it at Disney World. This is before Disney World was completely open. However, Hawaiian Village was open, and that's where we had our marketing conference. And the last day of the conference, I was sitting in the dining hall, and the president of Oscar Mayer came in. His name was Jerry Eagle. And uh, we started talking. He said, may I join you? I said, yes, sir. So he sat down, we started talking. Then he told me, he said, uh, people had been coming up and promoted, and I'm still sitting there. Uh, I hadn't gone anyplace. He said, the reason we didn't send you to Seattle is that 
the salesman that we sent knew the complete operation of the Western region. I could understand that. Then they had an opening in uh, Salt Lake City. He said, we didn't send you there because the Mormons, you know how they don't particularly care for Negroes. I said, yeah, I understand that, too. And so he said, where would you like to go? I said, I'd like to go to Denver, but I know that the, the center manager in Denver doesn't want to go and doesn't want to leave. And that was the end of the subject. And that was in November of uh, 41. April 42, uh, not 40, I'm sorry, 72. Okay. I was in 71. And 72, April 72, I got a call. Go to Los Angeles to meet with the... Uh, uh, director of the Los of the Western Region uh, for an interview for a job in Denver. So I went, I passed the interview, and uh, came to Denver in April of uh, uh, seventy two. Okay. And that's how I wound up in Denver. This is a place I always wanted to live, uh-huh. and I got my wish. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. So, hey. Uh, so I here in Denver, I had uh, three secretaries, two secretaries, three cooler people, uh, two district managers, and ten salesmen working for me. And the first black center manager Oscar Mayer ever had. Wow. You did a lot of firsts, uh, James. A lot of firsts, right? <laughs> That's for sure. So, hey, we are just about out of time. But what okay. a story. And, Harvey, what would you say to the young people of America today? Well, my motto has always been strive to be the best. No matter what you do, if you're a janitor, be the best janitor. Strive to be the best no matter what you do. And have a goal. And uh, you have to have a plan, though, with that goal. No plan, you won't go anyplace. Mm -hmm. So have a goal and a plan and... And do Work your best. Work your plan and you'll achieve your goal. Wow. And always strive to be the best. Always. No matter what it is. If you're going to be a janitor, well, we don't call them janitors anymore. If you're going to be a building custodian, strive to be the best building custodian. No matter what you do, do your be best. Ah, uh, awesome. The best. Retired Lieutenant Colonel James Harvey, World War II veteran, Korean War veteran, fighter pilot, this has been an honor. Thank you so much. You're welcome, ma'am. Thank you. Okay, so this is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks World War II Project signing off, and God bless you, and God bless America. Join us next time for the World War II Project and your host, the AmeriChick, Kim Munson. Until then, keep saluting the greatest generation.